start our uh, message this morning, I just want to let you know that my opening illustration rocked. Uh, come on now. Thanks, guys. Bad dad puns are specially delivered to you by uh, Jason Hefner. Thanks for the rock this morning. This is a petrified rock. Petrified uh, comes from a petrified forest. These are made from trees that have turned into rocks over a very long period of time. In the uh, northeast corner of Arizona is the petrified National Petrified Forest. And so all throughout there is rocks like this, and I suppose much larger rocks, uh, something along these lines. And it turns into quartz, right? Technically, is this quartz? Is that in the family of quartz? See? I told Jason I'd be talking and just pretend like I'm right and that I know what I'm talking about. So these are Jason's, and he had, uh, he had several more. Uh, but uh, when you walk into or drive into the petrified forest, there is a sign that says very clearly, do not remove the petrified wood from the forest. Now, Jason didn't break any rules. There are some that's been taken, and you can purchase and. Jason's following the rules. Uh, if I were there, I probably wouldn't, I'll be honest. I'd probably swipe it and say, oh, it's just little. No one will miss it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so in fairness, there was, there was, <laughs> Oliver's ratting me out. I feel like I need to explain myself a little bit, but there's really no justification. I did break the rules. You're right, Oliver. Uh, that, there goes that thinking, you know, seeing past the facade there, you know. Uh, we, were, we were walking, weren't we? Uh, we were walking a trail, and we wanted to see a waterfall. Well, to get a real good look at the waterfall, you had to climb over the fence. Now, it wasn't a fence designed to really keep people out. It was just, you know, a couple of things. It, it, was, it was nothing. So, uh, so we hopped over, and, you know, you had to get a good look at the waterfall. So I explained to Oliver that's just for liability. It's not a real rule. Uh, uh, so anyways, that's a, that's a little bit of a side thing from the actual uh, illustration that really... Uh, uh, so the petrified forest, it has the rule. It says right there, don't remove any of the rocks. Well, what do you bet that there's people who, you know, they swipe little ones like this. Some people even, they talked about hiding hiding a bunch of rocks underneath potatoes because they would blend in or whatever. So I was just reading about it this week about how people were sort of breaking these rules. Well, there's something about when you take uh, petrified wood from the forest, uh, they actually mention that there's a, the curse of the petrified forest, like actually taking it. There's this curse wrapped around it. And people would talk about having terrible bad luck because they've taken petrified wood uh, out of the forest, and people talking about their relationships falling apart, people losing their jobs, all sorts of bad luck, and so they attribute it to taking the rocks out of the petrified forest, and so what they end up doing is, is they mail it back, and when they mail the petrified wood back, it's often accompanied with a letter, and the letter says something along the lines of, we've had terrible luck since we've taken this, please accept our sincere apology and sincerest apologies, and please forgive us for what we've done, and we, we give you the rocks back. And they even say sometimes 
in detail where they took it because they think, okay, it's got to go right back to the exact spot where they took it from, and maybe that will release the curse. Now, I think that it's probably just the weight of their own guilt causing problems, but that's besides the point. What I wanted to show you is, is what the park rangers do with petrified wood when they get it back. You see, what they will explain to you is, is that it's been taken out of context. And so they can no longer observe it the way that they want to observe it and all the scientific studies. It's been ruined. And so what they do is they just put it in a pile. Do we have that picture? And there's the pile. There's several piles throughout the park scattered around. And they call each of those piles a conscience pile. They call it the conscience pile. This morning we're going to be talking about baptism and how it relates to salvation. Last week we spoke about baptism of being something that invites us into the mission of God. We see Jesus lowered into the baptismal waters in the Jordan River and he comes out on a mission of seeking first God's kingdom, and that's the message on his lips. And so we see baptism as a part of an invitation for us to join along in the mission of God. But then there are several scriptures that help develop even further a sort of understanding of, of what our baptism is, what it, what it means. And so talking about baptism as salvation, you can already sort of get the sense of, well, are we going to go there? Are we going to ask the hard questions of, is baptism essential for salvation? If you're sprinkled, if you're dipped, if you're, you know, if you got a drive-by, you went through the car wash, does that, does that count? Is baptism essential to salvation? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to put baptism in the story of God. I want to put baptism and place it right smack dab in the middle of what God's story is all about. And what God's story is all about is that he is redeeming and he is seeking and he is saving all of us lost sinners. You know, that conscience pile was really kind of a modest pile. I suppose if you took, the, uh, if you took and correlated that to my own personal sin, my conscience pile might be quite a bit larger. Of all of the sin and all of the wickedness and all of the brokenness that is in within me, What would your conscience pile look like? I want to talk about our conscience. I want to talk about what we're aware of, of our own sinfulness, of our own brokenness, of our own willingness to do what's right. And in my case, sometimes hop over fences so you can get a better look at a waterfall. Are we aware of our sin? You know, Jesus, um, Jesus was baptized. is lowered into the Jordan River. You know, and the reason why he does that starts way, way back in the beginning of the Bible. We look at Genesis 1, and we see that God is creating and he's forming. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. It was formless and void. And what God does is he starts forming and filling. The very first thing he starts doing is forming the earth and separating the waters and creating earth and water. It's not very much long, uh, longer within the story of Scripture that we see Noah. Noah is called and he builds an ark, right? And then what happens, guys? There's 
lots of rain, right, Oliver, Connor? You guys have only had that lesson in Sunday school 50 times. Why we do that one, I don't know, because it's all about the wickedness of humanity, right? It's really a grotesque story of violence, of overwhelming violence, and people hating God and hating God's ways. And God's response is to redeem and save Noah, and he instructs him to build the ark, and then the floodwaters come, and God starts something new. Water will play a central role in the story of Scripture. God will use water to help deliver his people. When we use the word salvation, I want you to think about the word deliver. Have you been delivered? Have you been saved from? You know, so Noah, they would look at Noah being saved and delivered from the flood. It's not much longer after that that we see God calling Moses. You see, God's people, the Israelites, they're held captive. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt, and uh, it was me. I said something that sounded like Siri. Good grief. <laughs> Maybe I needed to think about what I was saying. I don't know. Uh, where was I? Uh, so Egypt, Egypt has Israel enslaved. And the people of God are calling out, God, will you hear us? God, will you deliver us? God, will you help us and take us from here? Surely this isn't what you planned for your special people. Surely this isn't how you wanted to leave us. You have to deliver us. You have to get us out from the, under the hands of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh just bears down harder on them. And God calls Moses, and Moses becomes the person in which God is going to deliver his people. And when God, uh, there's the ten plagues, and the, the Pharaoh's like, okay, that's it. We've had enough after the death of his firstborn and all of those of Egypt. God says, away from, or Pharaoh says, away from me, and he delivers his people. And what happens for the Israelites? But they come up to the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, I don't know which, but what matters is, is there's a significant sea in front of them, and the story goes that God's presence was leading them, and then God's presence sort of flips on their, uh, onto the back of the Israelites and, and wards off Pharaoh's men and causes confusion and the presence of God separates the sea and the Israelites cross over on dry water, dry river, or dry seabed, and they get to the other side of the sea. Just a quick question. If they don't follow and they don't cross over, are they delivered? Are they delivered? When the people of God cross through the Red Sea and they reflect about what just transpired, this will become the salvation language of the Israelites. They will say to one another, remember how the Lord God delivered us out of Egypt. Remember how the Lord God, the one and true God, delivered us and saved us and redeemed us. The way the Israelites talked about salvation was saying, remember how God delivered us from Egypt. Remember how he's taken us away from the oppressive arm of Pharaoh and slavery and says, you are now free and you are now my children they would remember the Lord delivering them through the sea. 
Well, we know what follows next is they sort of blunder and they mix, mess things up and they, they fashion themselves an idol and they get confused. And then they wander for 40 years. And then after that wandering for 40 years, they see themselves in front of water again. And there is a body of water, the Jordan River, and at that time of year, it was in flood stage. And, when it, and they're looking at it, and on the other side of the Jordan River is the land that God has been promising and telling them about and saying, there is a place for you, and there is a place where you can have a home, and you will no longer be wandering, and this will be a good and fruitful and wonderful land for you, and it is all for you. It is all for you, but you have to get onto the other side. And they're standing before the Jordan River and the priests, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they walk into the water and the water dams up and the Israelites can cross over on dry ground and, and Joshua sends the Israelites into the riverbed and said, collect 12 stones and stack them together because we're going to remember that the Lord has saved us, that the Lord has delivered us. If they don't cross the Jordan River, are they delivered? You see, God, he's using water to tell a story. He's using water as a sacrament. Baptism becomes a sacrament. And that word is loaded and it can be so confusing. But here's the message of what a sacrament is. A sacrament communicates God's work, God's ordained work. It serves a purpose. So let's flash forward a, a long ways and it's after Jesus has ministered it's after Jesus has been crucified it's after Jesus has resurrected it's after Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and he sends out his church and the very first activity of his church is for Peter to stand before a group of people a group of Israelites and he says to them a message about hope a message about kings a message about sin, a message about wickedness. And he reaches out and he says to, the, uh, to this group of Israelites, he's, he calls them a wicked generation. That's one way to get uh, your message across. I, instead of my, my really rocking, awesome opening illustration, I could have called you a bunch of uh, wicked generation, you know, and say, hey, that's how you get on the good side of everybody. But I want you to hear this. Jesus calls them a wicked generation. Why? His message to them over and over again, why does he curse the fig tree? You ever wonder that? Jesus walks by and he's like, man, I don't like that fig tree. It's not bearing any fruit. Jesus was illustrating the hearts of the people who were being obstinate and, and deaf to his message, who were not hearing that he was the Messiah. And they were going around looking for more and more signs and wondering, give us more signs. And Jesus is saying, what more do you want me to give you? I've already healed the blind. I've already lifted up the sick and the broken. I've raised children from the dead. What more do you want? And Peter stands before the audience and he says, you all, you all have had a hand in this. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he was, he was living among us. And you wouldn't hear him. You wouldn't hear of his love for you. You wouldn't hear of his way for you. You have gone your own way, and you haven't listened. And he uses an illustration. He says, 
we know exactly where King David is buried. We know the time, we know the place, and we can go to where his, his uh, gravesite grave is right this very moment. But he says, there's one who has come who is greater, and there's one who was crucified, and he was buried. But he tells him, friends, he's no longer there. That Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and his tomb is empty. And he says, he's no longer there. And he says this word to the, uh, to the audience. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you've had a hand in crucifying. He was the one we've been looking for. And it says that they are struck in the heart. And I think it's that very message that Jesus whom you crucified, whom you had a hand in all of this. I think that's the line that strikes them in the heart because it's the line that strikes all of us in the heart. That Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is our King. He's the one we've been waiting for. He is the hope of salvation for all. He is the one who delivers. And when they're struck in the heart, they ask a question. They say, Peter, what is it that we have to do? Brothers, what must we do? And then Peter says, turn back to God. He says, repent. He says, turn your life back to God. And if you ever want to know what is the first, very first step for any person, Christian or otherwise, is always turn back to God. Wherever you're at in your life and whatever story is going on, the first step is always to turn back to God. Because if we never turn back to God, there will never be deliverance for anyone. Because salvation comes from Christ alone. You have to have Christ. You have to turn back him and he says turn back to God repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit how do I get my life right with God how do I get back to him How do I walk with him again? How do I walk with him for the first time? For the first time, it's turning back to God and being baptized. I think if you're a baptized believer in Christ, I think it's remembering that decision you made. I think it's remembering the baptism when you said, I want to turn my life back to God and I want to live with him. I want to seek him with my whole heart. I want to seek his kingdom. I want his forgiveness. I want his love. I want his spirit at work in my life. Of all the things, why does, why does Peter say repent and be baptized? I think because he wants us to understand this sacrament. I think he wants us to place us right smack dab in the middle of all of God's children and say, 
I've been delivering people through water all this time. Saying, enter into the water and enter into God's story. Enter into this story of your own volition, of your own will, and say, Jesus is my Lord, and I am turning back to him, and I want to give him my whole heart and everything I am. I want to die to myself, and I want to live to Christ. I want to pursue him. In Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. You see, Paul, he would be walking down a road and he would be on his way to persecute Christians. And Jesus interrupts Paul's life and he says, why are you persecuting me? And he strikes Paul blind. And Paul, he turns to God and he's baptized and he goes on missionary journey after missionary journey announcing the good news of Christ. And he'll have to tell us something about baptism and we lean on Paul quite a bit about his understanding of baptism. And one of his great teachings on it is found in Colossians 2. Starting in verse 9. It says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and in all the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If you were conscious of all of your sin, if you were aware of all of the things that you have done to hurt God, to hurt others, or hurt yourself, how great of a sin would that be? Yet in Paul's eyes, for those of us who are privileged to be called the children of God, he tells us that our indebtedness was nailed to the cross. You know, if, if you would, if you were to live, uh, live in the ancient world, in the Roman world, if you owed something, if you owed a debt, instead of putting it in the classified ads and embarrassing you, they, they would put it on a post in a public square. And they would say, Jordan Nakis owes this. Student loan debt you know, put it all out there, credit cards, you know, lay it all out there. And he hasn't paid a lick of it. Paul, he takes that very word and he says, all of that sin, all of the things that are held against us, all of our brokenness, all that we have, and says we are forgiven because 
each and every one of those, instead of being nailed on the public square, they've been nailed to the cross. You are forgiven. And not only are you forgiven, you also are, are a part of the resurrection and you have new life. And not only that, there is no powers or principalities that are over you, for Christ has overcome them all. He has emptied them of their power. Peter puts it this way. In baptism, which this prefigured now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. I don't know what your conscience pile might look like. Yours is probably a little smaller than mine. But all of us have one. All of us are aware of our sinfulness and our brokenness. And the gift of God is this that you can enter into water trusting in Jesus as Lord and King. And God works. God acts. God responds. Because he wants you to be a part of his story. There's something curious about those guys, those park rangers, taking all the rocks and throwing them in a pile. They say it's been taken out of context. And they serve no purpose anymore, so let's put them in a pot. I'm going to do a little juke on my opening illustration, I'm just going to say this. God takes us from the context of the world, and he places us in the context of his story. When we remember his, the baptism that we share in, we remember that Jesus is Lord and he's king, that we remember that we entered into the grave just like he went into the grave, and we remember and we cling on to this hope that life is ours everlasting. When we die to self, we join with Jesus in his death to self and crucifixion on the cross, and we share together in the forgiveness of sin. Plucked from the context of this world, we are placed in the context of God's great story, of belonging to the kingdom of God. So my challenge and my encouragement to you today is, will you believe? Will you turn back to God? Will you remember your baptism? And the day you decided to give Jesus your life and your love, your entire heart. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for today. And I ask God that you would help us to remember. Help us to remember your son entering into the waters of his own baptism. Remember your son entering uh, into Golgotha on the cross. Remember your son buried in the tomb. Remember your son being risen from the dead. Remember your son ascended. For you are Lord, you are King, you are good, and you are righteous. All things are subject to you.
It is your great name. It is the great name of Jesus Christ that offers salvation and hope. And without you, there is no salvation. And so we turn to you for our deliverance from sin, our deliverance from death, our deliverance from a dark world opposed to you, that we may walk with you in the kingdom of light. We open ourselves to you and your spirit to work in our lives. Stir in our hearts now, God, that we would walk faithfully with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As the worship team comes forward, I simply want to ask, what must we do? Aware of our own part of the story, what is our response Foremost, it's to turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Messiah, for forgiveness of sins and the gift of His Spirit. We turn to the one who has authority to forgive sins. We turn to the one who has authority over death and life. We turn to the one whom all nations and all people will recognize as Lord and King. Please stand and continue in our worship.